Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. Quality, cosy log cabins at affordable prices, timberliving.ie. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show. Uh, On a few of the front pages this morning, Gary Ringrose is there in full flow against the French yesterday. Uh, He's on the front of the Sunday Times, and on the other hand, the Sunday Times lead story, GAA star lied that he had my wife's cancer is their lead. Uh, The Sunday Independent has an extraordinary story on the front page, cash for ESB connections, and we'll come back to that, and Gary Ringrose there as well. Uh, The Business Post pressure grows on government over, quotes, political use of Attorney General's office, and whatever about uh, pressure growing, there is quite a bit of discussion and some criticism of that Attorney General's report across the papers today. Uh, The Irish Mail on Sunday, care home threats to evict over quotes extras fees and this is a story that comes up every now and again and uh, this is about people being charged for all kinds of extra activities and 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 things that you would think would be part of their general care in uh, in um, care homes. The Mur has a story about the two men who were um, sentenced for their part in the murder of Keen Mulready Woods during the week, and the Sunday, the Sun on Sunday has that awful story in Galway of those three uh, teenage boys whose car went into the water. It's such an awful tragedy, and three families there um, destroyed. Now, um, our panel today. Lorna Fitzpatrick is the former president of the USI and former advocacy manager of the NCBI, and she is a member of the Labour Party. Donegal O'Bacoin is a professor of politics in DCU. Um, Jack Horgan Jones, Professor Jack Horgan Jones, it says here, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Jack Horgan Jones is a political reporter with the Irish Times, and uh, Ellen O'Malley Dunlop is a former chairperson of the National Women's Council of Ireland and the Rape Crisis Centre, and she is a member of Fine Gael. So good morning, everybody. And uh, as people will have got from the romp through the front pages there, there's lots in the papers today and I'm going to try and get through a good lot of it. But we should take a minute, Lorna, just to reflect on what happened uh, on Lansdowne Road yesterday. And a team that kind of seems to be getting better and better. Oh, and long may it last. Um, It was fantastic. Now, look, we won't uh, forget that there were some handling errors and that first try for for France really did come as a result of some of our our handling errors. But God, you can't take away from it. It was absolutely fantastic. Now, I I do think there was some queries to be had about the yellow card. To me, it was a a straight red. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know... And actually, one thing that I think when it comes to rugby, normally the ref in decisions are really quite good because you have the TMO, you have everything and it's happening live, you know, um, which we can't always say for, for every other sport. But I do think that was the, the wrong decision in the moment, to be honest. But uh, we'll, we'll take the win and, and happily uh, celebrate it. Yeah, yeah. So we're not getting too upset about that that shoulder to the head, Jack, are we? Because we won, but well, otherwise I mean, we would, the country would be up in arms. Like yes, I mean it was it was a great advertisement for the game of rugby, particularly that first half where I think there was four tries in the first twenty minutes. Something three of them being Irish obviously helps with the with the reception that goes on here. Um, but there was this massive shoulder charge by the French tight head prop Unai Antonio to the Irish hooker Rob Herring, who went off injured afterwards. And while you know. As I say, it was a great celebration of rugby, an incredible spectacle. The game has a problem with this issue. The game is already facing a series of class action lawsuits from former players who have early onset dementia and so on and so forth. And that's why there's so much commentary on this and so much attention on referees to get these calls right. And a lot of and the did commentary it take afterwards. them time as well? I wouldn't be an expert, no, but it, did it take them a while to decide to, on a head injury assessment as well? Yeah. I'm not sure on the HIA itself, um, but he certainly to my recollection, went off the pitch and did not come back on. So that would suggest either that there was a HIA, an assessment of it, which he did not pass, or else the kind of prima facie evidence of it was such that they weren't going to even do the HIA, they weren't going to send him back on, which is the protocol. I mean, it's less the protocol issue here, which is often called into question, the assessment of the head injury and whether someone can rejoin. That has been an issue in Irish games previously, and it's more the refereeing decision because these things, these calls, these charges where the head is involved, they have to be policed and 
and to be seen to be policed yeah. as well because, because it's the advertisement and, and, that goes and out you're for the thinking game. of mothers watching that well, going, mothers, fathers, yeah. everyone yeah. you know like I yeah. mean people are making the question of whether they want their kids to play rugby growing up and the game has expanded massively in the last few years you know outside its traditional bailiwicks of kind of you know leafier suburbs and male dominated there's a big female game now and that's all there to be encouraged but I think the game has to get this right so people are focusing correctly on the fantastic exhibition that we saw yesterday in Lansdowne Road and less so yeah. on the issue of head yeah, injuries. Yeah, yeah, and 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 we'll focus on the on that part of it. Now, listen, um, let's rock on. Uh, there, it feels like that the big political story of the week, in a strange way, Donica, is contained in a Hugh O'Connell's piece in the Sunday Independent and a terrific piece by Aidan Regan in the Business Post. And this is as a professor of politics. What is your view on what is going on here in terms of the far right gaining traction in this country? Because there are some people who say, well, stop talking about the far right. It's not happening. Then you've Aidan Regan there saying that basically uh, we, we would be a complete outlier if they if they didn't have some kind of traction in the country. And then we see Hugh O'Connell saying that possibly an underlying suggestion that the other parties are getting a bit more migration conscious in response to this. Yeah, that's that's very true. And as I surveyed the newspapers this morning, I mean, one thing struck me. I spent a lot of time in the archives being a historian at heart. And you find that sometimes the stories that dominated the, the newspapers of the day were of no long-term significance. And then that there were stories that were really of long-term significance and historic significance, and they weren't being covered at the time. So I think this question about, you know, how far, this is Aidan Regan's uh, article, how far is Ireland from having an electorally viable far-right party, is a question that may, in retrospect, be a very important one that he's asking mm-hmm. now, um, because we are an outlier. We've always been an outlier, by the way, it's worth stressing, because, as you know, most of Europe for, for decades had a left-right divide uh, dominating politics. We didn't have that. As you know, for most of Irish electoral history, the choice was between two centre-right parties, uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, and that's only becoming unstuck uh, in relatively recent times. And the consensus was is that that's because there's kind of a big bang of politics throughout Europe. Uh, when people get the vote for the first time, uh, it determines uh, you know, the trajectory of Irish or European politics or national politics. So most parties or most, most countries, when they were getting the vote, the, the vote for the first time, they voted for left or right. And that's why they stayed dominant in those party systems. But when the Irish got the vote for the first time, they were issues of sovereignty and nationalism, which is why that even now uh, the three largest parties can trace their roots back. Back, uh, to to uh, the War of Independence and the Treaty and whatnot, and and Labour, of course, was traditionally the weaker party. So we're in a very interesting situation now because in most European countries, uh, the far right is getting somewhere 15 20% or the populist right. Um, and we don't have that. Though I noted a, 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 an article in the Mail saying that the far right party in Ireland is going to put up candidates in every constituency in the next country. What's, what's, there's two major things here. One is that this is the first time in Irish electoral history that we don't have uh, a, a centre-right party in the opposition, a major centre-right party in the opposition. The two centre-right parties are in government together. And that potentially leaves a vacuum for a right-wing opposition party. Um, the argument that uh, Aidan Regan makes, and he makes it very well, is that one of the reasons why Ireland is in a, it, it, you can explain that, that Ireland's difference is because the kind of the, the, the nationalism in Ireland has been kind of uh, monopolised by a party like Sinn Féin. And Sinn Féin is a, is a left-wing party, it's a progressive party, it's not anti-immigration. So this would normally be the constituency that the far right would be kind of mm. um, uh, mopping up electorally. And Sinn Féin have taken that vote. But, and he makes this point, if Sinn Féin go into government after the next election... Uh, become the establishment. They will become the establishment. And then you might find... So he's really thinking ahead here. What will happen after the next election if Sinn Féin go into power? They will will then uh, probably disappoint many of their their supporters who come from a constituency that might otherwise uh, have have a voter for a different party. And that may be where the far right might have an opportunity that they've already exploited Uh, in Europe. Ellen. Um, well, it, it's very concerning. And I, I, you were mentioned other how you're interested in history. I'm interested in also in Irish mythology. And it's very interesting where the far right uh, are very much anti-immigrants. And if you look at our mythological history, uh, actually, our first uh, immigrants came from the Sudan in the, the Book of Invasions. Uh, it's the Largawala. Uh, it was a, a woman called Cesar who came to Ireland with 50 women and uh, four uh, men. So it's really interesting. We have always been a country that 
had, we were always a country who brought people in and who went to other countries. Okay, I was not expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were talking about mythology uh, yesterday and archetype and and they are very interesting because they are informing our collective unconscious, which is a really important part of, of us as a country. Okay, so Jack, to bring it back to now, and mm. that, so that Hugh O'Connell piece, Migration Crisis Rocks Coalition, is that something that is going on, to your knowledge? Yeah, I think yeah. That, I think it's quite a significant story because, as the guys as, as the guys have described, there's a kind of there's a schism or a shift going on in the wider electorate, and you know the the saliency for voters of the migration issue and of refugee accommodation is something that the kind of the population writ large is grappling with. But what the government has more narrowly been focused on for the last year or so has been the accommodation side of this, because we have had 75,000 people come into this country over the last 12 months or so who have needed state accommodation. And since it feels like since the very start of this, the thesis has been that Roderick O'Gorman in the Department of Integration has been kind of left holding the baby on this. And it's, it's a thread that has been kind of throughout the coverage and people kind of hinted at that he's kind of felt himself to be left high and dry but it's kind of coming into the foreground in this piece and the Sunday Independent today on page six because you have not only Fine Gael um, parliamentary party members including former cabinet ministers explicitly attacking Roderick O'Gorman for saying you know that the communication and so on is not good enough and um, but you have a Green Party source pushing back very strongly and saying, look, Roderick has been left high and dry here. He's been looking for support from other cabinet men- members. He's been looking for support from other ministers. And if these Fine Gael backbenchers want to have a cut off him, perhaps they should be looking more closely to home. So that's, that's to my mind, a significant gear shift in how the government has been managing this. You now see a fault line emerging within the coalition. Okay. It's something that I think that the, the, the leadership should and, and, and has to kind of address because if the constituent parts of the coalition start to buck against each other that that kind of compounds what is already a massive public policy problem and it, it, it's a new kind of threshold to this whole story you know because I think ultimately the only fair judgment is that he has to, to a great extent been left to kind of accommodate these people and his department has provided that short term response but we don't seem to be able to move and I feel kind of almost hoarse saying it at this stage but we don't seem to be able to move from that emergency response to that, that more medium term more sustainable response. The defence they'd offer obviously is that this is a kind of once in a generation migration crisis but like they will reap the whirlwind for you know, politically failing to address and manage this and as much as they will reap the whirlwind for the change that's going on that the guys have described around, you know, voter attitudes to migration. Yeah. Lorna, there has been a kind of a narrative this week that Fine Gael, the government, mm-hmm. the Taoiseach maybe, uh, t- toughening up a mm-hmm. little bit on migration. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that piece um, in the, the Sindo, I have to agree. I, I think it, when I read it, I just thought that it really just put Roderick O'Gorman under the bus um, as, as far as anyone was concerned from the quotes in that piece. And in fairness, I don't think that takes into consideration the significant challenge and, and work that he's been trying to do to home people and, and so on. Um, but I, I do think... Yeah, no, there has been a fair amount of criticism of the fact that th- that people are saying that they have been in touch with the department offering buildings. We've heard them on yeah. the airwaves saying it. Yeah. We heard that the HSE are claiming they offered 300 buildings uh, that they weren't using and it seems nothing has happened with most uh, of them. Like. And, so, and you know, it is far from perfect. Uh, too. Oh, absolutely. Ho- wholeheartedly agree with that. But I, I think um, that to me screams of the importance of transparency, you know, and, and what's the response? So if people are putting these in, what's the r- response back from the department on it? I do think that the wider point um, and like my community down home um, and I, I'm going to be very uh, light on this one because I don't want to, to give too much away. Um, but our community down home has a, a direct provision centre and has um, a, a, in around just under 40 families from, from Ukraine. Um, and our community is working really well on trying to integrate people. And I'm conscious of not giving too much away about where that is because I'm fearful of the far right trying to come and exploit some of those fears. Um, we had a meeting just two weeks ago um, for a local charity that I'm involved in and, and the discussion came up um, and there were genuine questions and I think that comes through um, all of the papers and all of the research in here that there are genuine fears, concerns, questions that people have and we need to be able to have that conversation and two weeks ago we had a meeting where people raised queries and raised questions 
around well how come so many how come only men what's the situation with how long are they here what's the, what's going to happen why don't we have other resources people in our community are calling out because we have um, we, we have a very very small community centre we have no secondary school we have no major shops in the area all of those kind of things and somebody who works um, with an awful lot of the guys in, in the direct provision centre and with the Ukrainian families was there and was able to answer some of those questions and that conversation was a healthy conversation that needed to be had mm-hmm. and people left with answers, not uh, second guessing questions, not leading to spiralling thoughts around, oh, well, what if this and what if that? You do and see that people seem to calm down very quickly absolutely. If, if, if they're spoken to and, and if things are talked to. And, and there's I a difference between communication and consultation there as well. And I think that's an important point. Um, like no one in our community should have a veto over whether anybody yeah. does come in or out. Okay. But having the opportunity to voice some questions and get some answers is essential and we see it working um, okay. and we see where it's not elsewhere as well. Okay, now I want to go back now if you put on your headphones we go to that story on the front page of the Sunday Independent cash for ESB connections and Mark Ty, news reporter with the Sunday Independent who has that story is on the line. Good morning Mark. Good morning Brendan. What's the story here? What is being alleged? Yeah, so in, these extraordinary allegations came out in um, a high court hearing last week um, where the ESB have taken a, a case, ESB and ESB networks, against Richmond Homes and Arkman, who are a state-backed uh, home-building firm, You're one of the, the largest home builders in the country. They have, they have some 4,000 homes under development. And um, the, the construction companies actually had a meeting with the ESB last year where they alleged that they were getting demands from ESB uh, technicians and engineers for for installing new meters in houses, so where ESB technicians were looking between fifty euro and eighty euro um, per per meter installed, and this is for you know company doing thousands of houses. This is becoming quite for, expensive. For, no, for just to be clear, for themselves, not for the ESB. Yes, these these in court it was said that these were corrupt payments. These were these were payments, cash payments, uh, and, and not only just for installing meters, but in, in one case. Um, a person who was named in court, Alan Brown, a, a design engineer, was alleged to have sought €35,000 to redesign a connection for a, um, a Richmond home site that would, he said it would save, that his design would save uh, the construction company uh, €150,000. And he, he sought 35000 alleged. Now, he, he denies making that, he denies doing any wrongdoing, but that was the allegation read out in court. And um, the, the, when the when the Richmond Homes uh, staff went in to meet ESB managers last year, they said, "Well, look, we we bargained uh, Mr. Brown down from uh, thirty five thousand to ten thousand, and we have paid him five thousand euro." And there was an audio file um, discovered by Richmond Homes, which uh, went into extraordinary detail. It was between um, allegedly Alan Brown and and Donald Mulligan, a contracts delivery management in Arkham, where they discussed. How so you have this transcript in, in the Sunday Independent today, or edited highlights of it, I suppose, or lowlights. Just just tell us about this extraordinary conversation. Yeah, so this is, um, in, in, in the transcript we can see um, Alan Brown allegedly going, you know, um, you know, do I have to wait another two years? Do you know what I mean? And we have Mr Mulligan going, what, for the few quid? And uh, we have Mr Mulligan saying, yeah, 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 no, no. As soon as we get the contractors on site, I need to get the money out of the site. As soon as I get contractors on site, I can get the money and I will straight away. And then they go on to say, you know, that this, there's a lot of trust between them and that no one else will know. And they're like, Jesus Christ, oh, F no. You know, that's what I'd be afraid of. Other guys, and he goes, no, 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 no. This is Alan Brown allegedly speaking. This is completely between you and me. If you have a problem with anybody else, they have no effing idea what's going on. Absolutely no idea. That's 100%. Then Mr. Mulligan allegedly says, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And Brown, again, it's trust on your side and on my side. And the the, the barrister for um, ESB said, well, look, they're talking about trust, but it, I, don't, I don't think they knew that this uh, one side knew that the other side was recording the conversation. And the, the ESB was introducing this evidence. They've already obtained these uh, this transcript and also extraordinarily uh, expense claims put in through Arkmount, the construction company in Richmond Homes, where... Uh, the managers and the construction companies were, were looking for subsistence payments, payments for factory visits. But on the emails, they were saying these these are payments we've made, some twelve hundred euro worth of payments to ESB uh, contract or ESB staff for meter installations. So the allegation from ESB is that Arkmount have gone to some way to uh, mislabel and hide these payments, cash payments that were made to ESB staff. And um, what they were seeking last week was basically an order compelling. Arkmount and Richmond Homes to divulge every payment that they've made across four different sites in North Dublin 
Um, that was strongly resisted by Arkmount and Richmond. They said they spent hundreds of thousands of euros re- researching through all their files. Um, they've handed over all the paperwork they can find on this when, when it came to light last year. And they're saying, look, we can't, you can't turn this into a quasi-investigator to go out and you know, managers here, these people who are alleged to have made the payments on behalf of the building company, they, they have a, a right of not self-incriminating themselves. Um, and, and so we're, we're awaiting a judgment from um, Judge Conor Dignam. Uh, he'll have to decide whether he's going to basically compel the construction company to, to set out the who, what, where, why and when, I suppose, of um, how each of these payments was made. And a number of people have resigned, Mark? Yeah, my my understanding that nine um, um, managers, directors, um, including the CEO of Richmond Homes last year, um, we had you know Mr. Mulligan, um, who was named that transcript, has resigned. We have another director of um, of Arkmount has resigned. So yeah, it, it was said in court that uh, Arkmount, you know, had, had suspended on pay the people implicated in these payments. They they took umbrage with suggestions, you know, that, that these these payments were imp- approved by the company, you know, as a, as a corporate entity. Uh, seemed to be a suggestion, but they didn't put on affidavit, basically, you know, denying. Like the ESB were suggesting that this was kind of a something that the whole company had approved, but they they were kind of reacted angrily to that. But there was no affidavit on on evidence from them, basically setting out the level of uh, knowledge in in the company. But it's it's been treated very seriously there, and obviously, you know, for a company to lose nine nine people, not all of them implicated in the payments, but nine people have resigned. It's obviously, um, you know, it, okay. it's had a huge effect on that company as well in making the payments, and okay. there's obviously a wider issue there. You know, we don't know how how wide this is across the industry. Um, there was talk about, you know, the fear in the construction company being that they'd be put to the back of the queue. Uh, they wouldn't get their new homes connected. They couldn't sell the homes effectively or move people into them if these payments weren't made. So there's okay. a kind of suggestion that there's a fear of being um, a whistleblower in, this, in, in these kind of cases. Okay, and there is an ongoing guard investigation into all that. And, and Mark, we're being very careful what we say about it today, but that is an extraordinary story. Mark Ty, news reporter with the Sunday Independent. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. Quality, cosy log cabins at affordable prices. Timberliving.ie Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back, Lorna Fitzpatrick, Donegal back on, uh, Jack Horgan-Jones and Ellen O'Malley-Dunlop still with us. And uh, Donica, you're disappointed with the amount of coverage of the Syria and Turkey earthquake situation in the papers today. I am. Um, going back to what I was saying about the long-term significant stories and kind of what grabs the attention in the short term, um, the big stories of this week are undoubtedly, you know, the 30,000 and counting. I mean, it may reach 50. There, there's a saying 50,000 people dead in Turkey and in Syria or Turkey, as the Turks now want us to call it. And um, and then, of course, uh, all signs of a major offensive by Russia uh, against Ukraine uh, in the coming week or two. And there's very little sign of that. Indeed, uh, Bertie Hearn's rejoining Fianna Fáil for 20 euro eclipses both of those stories in the we, Irish we, media. We'll come to that. Don't, don't worry. Um, so listen, uh, can I ask, so we did take both those things. Can I ask you about um, Ukraine? Like, is somebody winning this war at the moment? Are the Ukrainians losing this war at the moment? What does a win even look like anymore? Can anyone win this? Like, I think people are starting to wonder, is this just going to go on forever at this stage? It won't go on forever. All wars end. But if you're saying, is is there an obvious uh, momentum at the moment? There, there, there isn't. I mean, it, it, it is at a point where both sides are going to re-intensify their, their military efforts because none of them are putting any stead in, in political negotiations right now uh, for the spring. Um, the Russians in particular are wedded to the idea that it's symbolically important to show some results uh, one year on because the anniversary, of course, of their invasion of Ukraine is is, is fast approaching. And, and that's why Volodymyr Zelensky... Uh, went on an unprecedented tour uh, of of Europe. He went to London, of course. He went to uh, to Paris. Uh, he went to Brussels, and he ended up in Poland before returning to Ukraine. And he had one simple message: the very same message that he gave in the first week of the invasion, when he was offered a, a one way ticket out of Ukraine. Uh, he said, I, "I don't want a ride. I want ammunition." That's still the story. Um, and uh, you know, the, the the it's it's remarkable how the Ukrainians have rebuffed, you know, what is a, a, a militarily superior Russian force. But it's also a, a Russian force that is running out of steam. Um, and on the other hand, I hear the Russians have 300,000 troops, twice what they started this war with, um, 
in country at the moment and ready to take back Donbass and fleets of tanks and armory and everything else. Yeah, and that's where it comes down to the quality of the troops and the quality of, of, of the weapons. I mean, the Russian troops are now primarily, you know, conscripts. Uh, I was in Georgia. Have they not have time to train these guys at this stage, probably? Uh, well, again, training. I mean, the Russian military is, is, is not a, a professional army fully. I mean, they, they wanted, uh, they still rely hugely on conscripts. And I was in Georgia, for example, twice during the last couple of months. I met hundreds of thousands. Of, well, I didn't meet them personally, but they yeah. were hundreds of thousands of, of Russians uh, who had fled there. Um, you know, those who are going are, are not motivated. They're often told that they're going for other purposes, that they're going to defend something, you know, a, a military barracks, and then they're thrown into the front line. The Ukrainians, by contrast, have a very different motivation in fighting, and that can't mm. be underestimated. Mm. Um, and then you have the weapons. The, the Russian weapons, which they produce themselves, uh, are, are inferior to Western ones. It's, there's no getting around that. And then they don't have alternative sources. I mean, that's why they're reaching out to Iran and North Korea, whereas Ukraine has has, you know, most of the top 10 economies behind it. If they were willing, and this has been the Ukrainian case all along, if they were willing to give what they have, they are convinced that they could repel the invasion. But instead, they're getting kind of incrementally, you know, like we're, we're one year on in the invasion now, and they're only now talking about giving them tanks, uh, which is, is, is an essential part of any counteroffensive that would be necessary for the Ukrainians. Okay, yeah, I, I was in Romania myself uh, just before Christmas uh, with the Council of Europe. We were observing how Romania was responding to the Ukrainian refugees and it was really harrowing from a you know from the purse to see the uh, busloads of Ukrainians coming across the border and coming into reception centres that were not fit for purpose really but how the Romanians were you know doing their damnedest to to uh, help them and you know there's history between Romania and Ukraine in the past but the Romanians are really stepped up to the mark and they have taken well I think I mean it, Romania was never a destination country it was always a uh, a transition country but mm. they have actually taken I think something like three million uh, Ukrainian refugees have come through Romania and I think there are about a uh, hundred thousand Romanians who are there at the moment and, and Romania is a very poor country and, and the same with Moldova um, it's uh, it is terribly worrying I, I was in um, Strasbourg during the weekend with colleagues from you know various different European countries and um, Poland who have taken you know a lot of uh, I think they've taken the most uh, immigrants and uh, it's it's really you know they're, they're all everybody is overloaded but I also have but uh, the, but the support is still rock solid it is pan European well it support, feels like it? that yeah, definitely yeah. and uh, I have a Ukrainian uh, young woman staying with me since last. Uh, April and her mother came to visit her recently and just listening to her story and the journey that she had to take to see her daughter because she didn't want her daughter coming back into Ukraine. Mm. I mean, these are, you know, we're it's it, like it's touching all of us. You yeah. know, the the yeah. young the young man Turkish man living in Rastani in County Leash, who says you know after the 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 terrible uh, tragedy of the earthquake, saying how he feels guilty drinking water when he thinks about you know his family who have been killed <clears throat> in the the um, yeah this yeah. terrible disaster uh, yeah and 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 the people left behind uh, as exactly. well who were in a shocking situation yeah. um yeah because Lorna we did gloss over um the earthquake there a little bit and moved on to Ukraine but you did pick a piece from the mm. Sunday Times yeah. and look there have been a lot of uh, individual tragedies and some miracle stories as well but you picked one story here Yeah this was by uh, Louise Callahan in the, the Times page 5 it, the, the uh, headline was one sister survived the other didn't and it told the heartbreaking story of a family who had actually just the night before the, the earthquake celebrated the 49th uh, birthday of the, the father of the, the family um, and, and spoke of you know the, the celebrations that people would have in their, their home for, for the, the, their dad's birthday Um and uh, the mother is, is quoted in the piece as saying, I was, ho- I was holding one of my daughter's hands and she was alive. And on the other side, I had one of my daughters dead in rubble. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but what came through and, and what was reported um, from people speaking there time and time again was tell people that nobody came. Tell them that no one arrived. And I think that that's the, the really harrowing message. You know, the, 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 there was people who were alive after the, the earthquake who could be heard speaking, who could be heard screaming, who could be have a conversation. 
and, and didn't survive the, the length of time it took for aid to arrive. And in that piece, it, dis, it does speak about how the government said it was doing everything that it could, but it stopped aid convoys from reaching hard to reach areas. It defunded search and rescue teams. And uh, uh, one that really uh, is uh, is quite shocking in, in another way is that it blocked Twitter for a mm, couple of hours directly right. after the attack in that critical time where people were calling out and, and, and speaking about what was happening. Where people were also tweeting their locations mm. under, to, under rubble. To get, like, yeah, yeah, to, yeah, to try and get aid and yeah. try and get rescue. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the other thing Jack. about this as well is, of course... There's an enormous human tragedy and it is, you know, we know natural disasters always have a human cost, but this seems to be above Mm. and beyond, you know, the usual in that space. But there is also a big political element to this as well. And that is a part of the world that has been destabilised by years of civil war. um, And you have uh, someone, a political leader in retrotype, Erdogan, in Turkey, who seems to be fundamentally undermined by his response to this. one of the most important agencies in reacting to these kind of events when they occur apparently is the army and because of tensions between his regime and the army they've kind of been disempowered over the years and they didn't really take their place in the for- in the forefront of the response and you know if something undermines and I suppose makes makes that country even more volatile. There are regional implications. There are also, as we've covered already, implications for migration, um, which is something that the rest of the world has to deal with as well. Yeah, Danica. Yeah, I mean, I've I've lived in earthquake zones, and you know, earthquakes are unavoidable. I mean, seven hundred and fifty thousand people have died in the last twenty years from earthquakes. Yeah. More than half of all and, have died and, from and, natural and disasters. And an interesting, if obvious, point I saw about them during the week is that a lot of natural disasters you can in some way prepare. A storm is coming. A hurricane is coming. These are an ambush. Absolutely. But the response, and this is the point that Lorna was made, the response to uh, an earthquake is something you have influence over. And as Jack was saying as well, the Turkish government is coming under a lot of criticism that it hasn't acted fast enough. There was a major earthquake in 1999, shortly before Erdogan came to power. 17,000 people lost in around the, 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 the northeast, which is where an earthquake would have and been And the expected. fallout from it probably helped Erdogan into power. It, it, it did, but it? all yeah. sorts of laws were brought in about construction, uh, you know, blocks and all that. And what, what has happened is, is that they seem not to have been implemented for a whole range of political political reasons and there's all suggestions of connections and networks yeah. and whatnot. And there's elections coming up now in Turkey in May, presidential and parliamentary, and how Erdogan is perceived to deal with this will decide whether he stays in power beyond the 20 years he's already been in power because, yeah. you know, he, he can either, he's a three-month sta- three state of emergency now, which gives him a lot of power. He'll be able to platform the kind of strong man in control of things. And he's certainly making a big show of, for example, already going after developers of apartment blocks mm-hmm. and stuff like Absolutely. that. Absolutely, but it could, it could backfire. everything within a year. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Just to not yeah. forget the goal, uh, the, mm. the all the, 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 those people from goal who died. I mean, the, these would be the ones yeah. who would be rushing to the forefront to help people, and and they themselves. Yeah, like, was twenty six, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Let's um. Let's come home again, Jack. Uh, the Attorney General, uh, the front of the Business Post, saying pressure is growing on the government over political use of Attorney General's office. Um, I don't know, is it as simple as that? But there is the, the, the fallout from that Attorney General report is still reverberating around, isn't it? It's an interesting one. It's a bit of a slow burn because obviously, you know, the, the report of the Attorney General into the nursing home charge and the disability payment issue was published on Tuesday. And yet here we are still talking about it on Sunday. And the, the focus seems to have gradually shifted from the issue itself to this report that was produced. And the allegation that the Attorney General Rossa Fanning is facing and to an extent the government is facing is that the, the office of the AG has become overly politicised and that this intervention didn't narrowly confine itself to the constitutional remit of the AG, which is to provide legal advice, obviously, to the government, but expanded into a political sphere and uh, offered a, a broader defence of the ethical and policy stance that the government has taken. Um, which, which no, is an interpretation of it from the opposition, we should say. Rossa Fanning was doing his job, his job is to be the legal counsel for the government and to to you know be, he's is their lawyer like absolutely and yeah. the majority of the criticism on the front page of the uh, business post is taken from the opposition who obviously could stand accused of acting somewhat politically themselves but you know there is also a weight of criticism emerging from the the kind of legal the world of legal academia um from the fourth estate as well though from reading yeah. Ross Fanning's report he seems to be pretty much indifferent to what the journalists of this world think but there, there there's a good piece um by Connor Casey and Hilary Hogan mm-hmm. uh, on page 23 of the business 
I suppose, which talks about some of these kind of relatively complex issues of whether the state should be a, a model litigant. Yeah, the explain degree, a degree. model litigant. So my, my very lay interpretation yeah. of it is, is that the state, when it's facing um, legal action, kind of needs to be the best boy in class and needs to adopt the most kind of transparent stance. And when it assesses that it doesn't have uh, a strong legal position, it should be to the fore in, in, in settling. And apparently this is something that the AG's office has in previous kind of statements of strategy said that, you know, this is going to be core to the I approach think the current state of in the current state in the current, state, in their current, in their current stance kind of, exactly yeah. and there doesn't seem to be much reference to that in the AG's report that came out so the two uh, the two academics in the business post are raising that question they're also and this was in my own paper in the Irish Times yesterday as well this question of the equation between the public interest and the public purse and just you know the the, the, the kind of traditional AG's role which the, the business post piece describes as um, AG's past haven't seen their role as extending the public defence of the morality and ethical soundness of government policies, that job is reserved to overtly political actors and they're saying they're now is at least it's at least fair to ask the question is the argument, the thrust of the argument in the business post of whether there is a shift underway with regards to the role of the AG's office and the AG himself in this instance. Okay and Lorna you're a member of the Labour Party and, and your leader has been uh, to the fore mm-hmm. in questioning um, how the state should be in 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 legal cases and what the public interest is and all that kind exactly. of exactly and and I think um, Ivana uh, Bacic the has brought forward or is is in the papers today in the front page of the the Business Post um, talking about bringing forward a, a bill. Um, that would propose reform of the office of the AG to increase transparency around the legal advice given to government, and to me that seems like it's a it's an absolute no brainer when it when it comes to um, policy decisions um, and and, um, and and not necessarily uh, in relation to, to litigation. But it, the reason I, I say that is because we have had scandal after scandal. Whether it's the um, and and I suppose scandal makes it sound as if it's not human, but the people who are being impacted by this. Are, are very much real and very much human um, whether it's the mother and baby homes whether it's um, in relation to eviction bans or, or whether it's in relation to disability payments and, and uh, nursing homes and uh, fees and so on um, the, the advice that the Attorney General provides is absolutely important um, but so important that it should be available um, and, and should be transparent. Okay. And it was made available and transparent. In this in, instance, in the, when in it this, suited uh, the, the, the government, as, as quoted by uh, Conor Casey and, and uh, Hilary Hogan, saying that, you know, it, we have now, t- the government have now taken one position on it, which was to publish it. Um, and if they don't do that into the future, when it's not politically expedient to them, what's the cost? Okay. Um, Donica. Uh, on page four of the Sunday Indo today, mm-hmm. there is a piece by Neve Horn. DCU faces backlash over award for Bertie. Are, are you? Um, Am I feeling the backlash? I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that was announced about two weeks ago. So I have to say, nobody has mentioned it to me in DCU. Okay. What is the award? It, an honorary doctorate, um, which is something that is kind of we don't have an award system really, as you know, like the, like the British do. Uh, so no knighthoods and no lords and ladies. So uh, these tend to be functional equivalents. Um, so you. Given him the equivalent of a, an honours list um, award, yeah, no, 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 it's, it's an honorary doctorate which has you know uh, been given in the past. I mean, the, the, the circumstances I understand it are because of the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement approaching, which of course Bertie Heard played a, a central part in his Taoiseach. and uh, and already honorary doctorates have been given to Bill Clinton, George Mitchell. Uh, David Trimble, Seamus Mallon, some of whom, of course, have already departed. Um, you know, and Monica McWilliams, actually, Professor Monica McWilliams, who was leader of the Northern Ireland's Women's Coalition, will also be uh, getting an honorary doctorate on the same day. So, so yeah, I, I you know, I, I saw the story. Um, I think what I what I've learned about Bertie Hearn in my experience, I have to say, I have a very different view from many people in the sense that, or different experience, maybe is the best word, because I left Ireland at the end of the nineties, just after the Good Friday Agreement, and when the Celtic Tiger was beginning to take its 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 stride. And um, and that that was kind of my memory of Bertie Hearn fossilized. And then I came back after the crash when everyone was going the opposite way and people were walking to the other end of the street if they saw Bertie Hearn, you know. And and and, uh, and when I came back, I, I you know, for example, my first engagement was inviting him to to meet uh, international. Uh, I had organised a conference on conflict resolution from different conflict zones in the post-Soviet sphere, and I invited him to come along. And what struck me was is how respected he was internationally. Um, you know, there was a whole queue of people who wanted to get their photographs with him uh, and advice from him. And indeed, there was an international organization there that brought him to Ukraine shortly afterwards. Okay. And it's not widely known, and also not widely known, that he was involved in the Bougainville um, peace process. And you, 
again, most Irish people say, what the hell was that? 20,000 people lost their lives. He was the one chosen to go to Papua New Guinea to be chair of the referendum commission to lead to that secession. So okay. I guess okay. my, my point is that there's very, yeah. very yeah. divergent views on him, uh, okay. internationally yeah. and domestically. Oh, and I just want, want to add, Ellen. I'm glad to hear that Monica Buck-Williams is getting uh, the honorary doctorate because the women okay. in the peace Let's process have, yeah. have not been, you know, until recently, her story, uh, a, a group of Grand, women. let's not get distracted though. We're well, back I think to, it's, um, Im- it's important to be distracted when women yeah. are excluded. Okay, okay. But from, from the story we're talking about right now, I don't want to exclude you. So your thoughts on Bertie Ahern and his return to Fianna Fáil and getting this award? Well, I think it's Fianna Fáil's decision uh, and uh, in terms of him getting a a reward, I I think he's done very good work around the peace process. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And that's DCU's uh, decision um, with I don't know if you want to talk about the presidency. Uh, Go on, yeah. Well, if he were put forward for the presidency, I certainly wouldn't be voting for him. Okay, why? Well, because um, I don't want to have a president who, um, uh, as as Taoiseach, hadn't a bank account um, and uh, got his money through uh, winning... As as finance uh, minister hadn't a bank account, Yeah, Yeah. yeah. As finance minister. And and what was the other thing you said Uh, there? Got his money by betting on horses. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, some some of his money, there were a range of of monies involved and some of it was from uh, whip around, some of it was savings and I think some of it was ultimately, yes, one on horses. Um, Lorna. Yeah, I have to say, I also have a very different view of this one because I was four when thir- when Bertie became Taoiseach. So um, I, I don't have a, a personal memory of those times either. Um, but but I, I do think um, that it is interesting. I, I think it's important that we recognise that he played a, a vital role when it comes to the Good Friday Agreement. And I'm lucky to have been four when he got into the uh, became Taoiseach and had such a pivotal role in terms of the Good Friday Agreement because I don't know... Uh, challenge and, and uh, troubles on this country in this country and on this island in the same way as, as many others would and he mm. played a, an instrumental role in that and that has to be acknowledged um, but but I do think um, that there are people within Fianna Fáil maybe who are, are sitting on their hands a little bit to see how he'll play out with the public around whether he will be a candidate for president or not. Um, I, I do think that's kind of there at the moment nobody is or not many are willing to put their head above the parapet to say yes Bertie will absolutely be on the ticket Um but there was one piece in the the business po- or sorry no there was one piece in the the papers today on on page three, um of the the business post yeah. um, by by Michael Brennan and it, it said a hern without uh, Fianna Fáil was like a soldier without a uniform, and there was one line that really stood out to me. Now it was um, attributed to an, an unnamed Fianna Fáil senator, um but it said that it would be uncharitable to deny him something he worked so hard to achieve in relation to his membership of of Fianna Fáil or him rejoining Fianna Fáil. And I don't know, but the the word uncharitable um, and and uh, somebody who uh, was involved in a, a tribunal. And of course, he, he disputes the, the findings and rejects the findings of the tribunal. But um, where they say that his account was untrue when it comes to 156,000 Irish pounds, was it? 65,000 um, Irish pounds. I find it very hard to, to, to view anyone uncharitable in, in that instance. Okay. Um, and it really did. It really did put a, a bit of a, a lump in my throat when I, I read that line this morning. OK, Jack, speaking of uh, unnamed um, Fianna Fallers, you were kind of talking to a lot of them over the last few days. And there, there was there's an interesting kind of mm. uh, nuance to various views. It's fascinating, actually, because there is there's like an emotional side within Fianna Fáil that still kind of thinks of Bertie Hearn as the man who delivered an enormous electoral success. and, and For the know, good old days for exactly, them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And there's this kind of sense talking to some of them privately this week that, you know, there's there's a at least a harking back to that time when Fianna Fáil dominated Irish politics and had that kind of cut and swagger and led governments with large majorities with ease. And those, those days are gone. You know, Irish politics has fundamentally shifted. So there's that kind of grassroots, you know, appeal to... Bertie Ahern. I think there's also a real politique. I think that he kind of bolsters Michal Martin when it comes into a very, a very kind of um, 
a tricky period in the north. You know, if there's a if there's a, a recasting of any of the institutions up there, I think that his standing up there is stronger than Michal Martin's. So having him in re- in reserve is important, and so it's important for Fianna Fáil. But then there's I think there's a limit when he's in that kind of statesman mold, that kind of emissary mold. I think Fianna Fáil are delighted to see him back on the pitch. But there is a very hard ceiling amongst people I, I spoke to during the week in terms of him becoming a political or an electoral asset. They don't see that, and they certainly don't see themselves out batting for him in 2025 or at any other time, be it a run for the Irish or anywhere else. You know, they 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 would view that them standing on a doorstep explaining the findings of the Man Tribunal or, or trying to equivocate over the uh, the economic collapse as really electorally damaging and not where Fianna Fáil has to be, which is you know trying to forge new connections with it with a, a generation that doesn't really have any time for Bertie Ahern, doesn't really have any cognizance of Bertie Ahern and is looking for political parties that can solve more bread and butter issues. Okay. Uh, two of the panel may not remember the crash, says one texter, but they're still paying for it, as will generations to come. Another texter says, by the way, it's the opposition, not the government, that is making the AG office political. The AG is doing his job correctly and neutrally. OK, we'll take a break. Lorna Fitzpatrick, Donico back on, Professor uh, Jack Horgan Jones <laughs> and, and Ellen O'Malley. Don't laugh, staying stay with us. Thank you. Text 51551. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Lorna Fitzpatrick, Donico back on, Jack Horgan Jones and Ellen O'Malley Dunlop still with us. Jack Horgan Jones, you're going to earn your a- academic credentials mm-hmm. now, right? Can you uh, very carefully uh, give me the gist of the story in the front of the Sunday Times, GA star lied that he had my wife's cancer. Yes, yeah, so this is a story that emerged first on Friday evening, I think broken online by the Mirror and the Indo, if memory serves, and effectively it, it deals with the Garda investigation into what is described as, as a GA star uh, facing allegations of, of fraud and deception. This, the central allegation involved here is that this individual deceived people into giving him either loans or, uh, or or just cash payments uh, for cancer treatment, uh, and the, the the figures involved are fairly substantial. So the the front page of the Sunday Times has a figure of two hundred and fifty thousand euro uh, allegedly improperly gotten, and you know some of the some of the individual components within that are also quite big. There's one hundred and twenty thousand apparently of a loan given, and the Sunday Times also has a, a smaller sum involved. But they've spoken to people who claim to have given this individual uh, a loan of five thousand euro in return for uh, which was two fund a stem cell treatment apparently and then lastly having developed misgivings about it found it very difficult to, to get this money back and only only receiving it back having threatened to, to go to journalists or to the, to the Gardaí so um, obviously it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a significant story a very serious story very serious allegations and, and one to watch to see yeah. how it develops and how that investigation proceeds Okay um, Ellen there are a number of stories involving um, violence against women uh, across the papers today but both you and Lorna picked um, Brenda Power's column about the sentencing of, uh, of, of a young man during the week. Yes, uh, um, Brenda Power um, uh, talked about this young man, 19, who had, um, he, he had a woman captured for two hours where he, uh, he poured boiling water over no, her. he boiled the kettle and went to look for the sugar, apparently. That, did, yeah. That's right. Well, yeah. he, uh, well, he was told to use sugar because it would be more painful. Yeah. Uh, uh, but he couldn't find any sugar. Yeah. But anyway... But he, I think he did the preparation. He did the preparation clear, and he, yeah. he got a suspended sentence. And uh, in fact, uh, Brenda Power goes on to say how 65% of convictions, according to a piece of research done by Women's Aid, uh, for domestic violence resulted in a fully or partially suspended sentence. Now that, uh, you know, I really don't think that's good enough at all. I mean, it doesn't uh, give any message out to potential perpetrators other than that they're going to, you know, do these horrendous acts with impunity. Um, And uh, we've had um, the um, Council of Europe uh, committee over here during the week um, monitoring Ireland to see how we are responding to uh, the prevention and uh, protection and um, prosecution of those perpetrators of of um, okay. Of so, Ellen, getting away from this individual story at yeah. all, we've had these massive uh, public conversations around various stories in this country. We've, we've had big uh, outpourings and promises to do better and everything else. 
are you telling me that in general and of course it does start with the legal system in general we're not doing better No I do think we are doing better actually and we are going to have and it's in the process of being developed uh, an agency within the Department of Justice which is going to take responsibility for the whole implementation of the third national strategy and it is definitely a really excellent strategy and it is based on those four uh, pillars of the convention of the European Convention on the elimination of violence against women. However, it is really important that these are implemented. I mean, the implementation plan is the most important mm. and that mm. that's followed through right across the board. Lorna? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. There is... Um there is, you know, a plan and, and it is very much down to the implementation and, and there has been progress, absolutely. But uh, what I think of all of the time, so like I, I scroll through Twitter like uh, all of us um, and after, uh, you know, cases are before the courts, uh, generally when it comes to domestic violence or violence against women, it, you see those suspended sentences like as um, has well, been outlined be, within the report. Yeah, yeah. But you see those and you see the reactions and I know from my groups and the people that I interact with online and, and so on, you feel the frustration and, and you wonder what message is it sending? You know, what? why report? Why go forward? Why take that? Why, why put yourself in that really difficult position um, where you're being questioned, where everything about you and potentially your previous relationships yeah. or anything like and that again, are being this questioned. Is a, this is not the oh, this case is a general, this case yeah, yeah, just, just generally. A general point, um, yeah. You know, that, that you're put under a microscope as a result of being attacked or, or being a victim of violence. Um, and then the, the sentence that's handed out is, is one that's of a, a suspended sentence, either fully or partially. And you're just told to, and the perpetrator is told, well, behave yourself now for the next few years and, and you'll be okay, okay. you know. And, and what justice is that? Okay. Um, Donica, before we finish up, I feel mm. that the, this is kind of a, it's a small story in the paper. <coughs> is this an important story about the, um, the cameras in uh, Leinster House? Uh, it could be. I mean, it, 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 this is a story of CCTV cameras in Leinster House could be reporting back to China. And it's, it's coming from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, who, you know, are usually uh, very alert to any threats to, to, uh, to civil liberties and, and privacy and things like that. And, and they say that this, the, 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 the company in question, uh, Hikvision, uh, which is, is Chinese state-backed, uh, which means, of course, Chinese state being the Communist Party of China, and it's been banned, the, the, the technology has been banned in many jurisdictions. Uh, they found, for example, that in uh, in Rome, at the air, the main airport there, that the, the cameras there, which are the same cameras apparently, uh, CCTV cameras, were communicating back to China 11,000 times per hour. So... You know, the question that obviously people are asking, um, as Daniel Murray points out, is, well, should people be worried? And, and you know, and then there's maybe the, 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 the old wags who might say, well, what would people be interested in China about what's going on in Leinster House? But he argues at the end there that, you know, this is a country that hosts 40% of European data. Many of the world's biggest internationals, uh, our multinationals are headquartered here. Okay. So what's coming out of Leinster House may be of interest to foreign powers. Okay, and that's all we have time for today. Thanks very much to my panel, Lorna Fitzpatrick, Donico back on Jack Horgan Jones, and Ellen O'Malley Dunlop. And now it's just coming up to 12 noon, and we're going to go to the newsroom and Kate Egan.